partners, and from the Maine Community Foundation, working with donors and other partners to improve the quality of life for all Maine people on the web at maincf.org. The time is 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Coastal Conversations with your host, host Catherine Schmidt, is up next. Good morning and welcome to Coastal Conversations. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the surface, diving deep into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. We're about to engage in the heart and soul of community radio, in which those of us in the studio and you who are listening create a dialogue that we hope will be of benefit to our coast and our communities. This is Catherine Schmidt, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. This morning, we are talking about oysters. They are certainly popular for the holiday season, and it's a growing industry in Maine. Um, We hope to answer your questions about oysters later in the program. Our guests in the studio today are Joanna and Jesse Fogg from Bar Harbor Oyster Company. Also in the studio is Aliyah Uchiova, a student at the University of Maine who's been working with me as Sea Grant Science Communications Assistant. We'll also be talking to marine extension professional Dana Morse via phone a little bit later. Um, First, I would just like everybody to introduce yourselves, your names, so people can hear your voices. My name is Jesse Fogg. I'm co-owner and operator of Bar Harbor Oyster Company. I'm his wife, Joanna Fogg, also co-owner and operator of Bar Harbor Oyster Company. And I'm Aliyah Yuchova, the science communication assistant at Sea Grant. And Aliyah, you're a student, a senior at UMaine? Yes, a senior at UMaine studying journalism. Great. Um, I think first we'd like to hear a little bit more. We have, we're really lucky this morning to have a couple of real live oyster farmers in the studio with us. And so we'd like to know a little bit um, about your farm itself. Can you tell us a little bit about the operations? Yeah, so my wife and I have been farming oysters in Mount Desert Narrows, right near the head of Mount Desert Island, in a small bay called Thomas Bay, for the last three years now. We started out very small to make sure we, you know, figured out how to do it first. Um, now we're up to about over a hundred thousand oysters per year, and uh, increasing slowly. Our goal is to maintain a quality first before quantity, so we've been slowly increasing every year. Uh, our oysters are surface grown, which means they're grown inside bags on cages that grow on the surface. Um, this just produces a cleaner, more uh, better looking oyster. And uh, also in Maine, especially down east Maine where we grow, uh, the water temperatures are at the very cold end of the oyster's habitat. So keeping them at the surface keeps them in warmer water and also where plankton is more available for them. Because that's what they eat. Because that's what they eat, yes. <laughs> um, and how did you, so how, did, how does the process work, sort of, because how does it start? You have to buy your baby oysters from somewhere, right? Correct. So we buy our baby oysters from a hatchery in southern Maine. Um, 
and they're at 9 to 13 millimeter, which is quite small. Um, and we raise them in smaller bags, smaller mesh bags, and we're constantly uh, getting them into larger mesh bags and also sorting them by size. Oysters grow best when they're with like-sized cohorts in their <laughs> growing environment. So you want to keep the runts with the runts and the and the heavy fast growers with the fast growers um, just to keep the competition at the steady. Yep, there, there ends up being a lot of handling. In the three years, we, we end up, um, all of our oysters at our market size are really close to three years or over three years. So in that amount of time, um, they go from the, you know, nine to 13 millimeter seed to a three inch or more oyster. So in those three years, we spend a lot of time moving them from one size mesh bag to another and another. Um, They go, they start them. Most of our seed, when we first get it, goes into the most inland um, section of our of our site. So that's where the waters are the warmest and they can kind of get, it's a little bit of like a nursery stage for them. And by the time they're market size, they've moved up um, closer to the, the narrows where there is a lot, a lot of water flow, a lot of tidal flow, and they're in um, a different kind of size mesh bag um, and also closer to where we launch our boat. So they're closer to harvest. So you're on the water a lot? We are on the water a lot, yeah. Um, we should be on the water every day if we <laughs> if we want to have a perfect oyster, um, but that you know it varies. This is our first year of having market size oysters, so we have to be on the water more and more. Um, we'll be on the water after this harvesting. We're we're hoping it warms up a little bit. It was nine when we got in the truck this morning, so it might be twenty by the time we, we're out there today. But yeah, we're on the water almost every day. So how did you come to, you know, this is your first year of of harvesting for market. So how did you come to, how does one decide to start an oyster farm? We have both um, worked on boats in different capacities our entire lives. And we um, found that we really kind of had to be away from Maine to do that unless we wanted to be in um, either yachting or lobster industry. So we were looking for ways to actually be home. We both grew up on MDI and to make a, to make a money or to make a living on working on the water near home. Um, and we both love food and we have loved fishing and we just kind of oysters seemed like they were just starting out, but no one was really quite doing it yet. Um, I mean, people around have, you, no one was around. Doing yeah. It. Yeah. So how were, did you first hear like where, what started the well, we've kind of followed what's gone on in the Damascata for years and watched the expansion. And then we've kind of watched the expansion up the coast of Maine. So then it moved to the Bagaduce. And, you know, the waters are warming up a bit, and, um, and especially in down east Maine. And we've said, you know what, I bet we can grow oysters here. So we got some small permits and tried it out. And the rest is history. Yeah. <laughs> It took a while. We definitely started. It takes a while to get um, all of the licenses or the permits that you need to to grow at, um, at the scale that we wanted to be at, so that we could actually, you know, make enough money to to be here. And um, we just started with some small, limited purpose aquaculture sites um, and bought a small. Well, I think we started our first year with seventy five thousand seed. Um, and really just got our feet wet, literally and metaphorically, <laughs> tried to figure out how, how do we grow these things, what are they, what do, you know. Um, did a lot of research on YouTube and felt really well received in the network of people, of aquaculturists who were really willing to come out and 
share their experiences, give us advice, lend us tools, um, just different things so that we could really figure out what we needed to do. Um, and so that was three years ago. And every year we've bought more seed and learned more things and built more gear. And um, it seems to be working so far. <laughs> so any surprises in those three? You know, you here you are, you're working on the water, what you wanted to do. Were there What, what were some of the things that you had not been expecting? We probably learn something every day. Um, I mean, from the small things of just like the little weird skeleton shrimp and critters that you didn't even know were out there that you find in your gear to um, what it feels like to have to let a client down because there there was a biotoxin outbreak and what hurdles you have to actually to jump in order to go from raising a really small creature to actually getting that um, on someone's table. Um, how about what were what's been some of the best parts of it? Sort of the most, you know, what what's the kind of day that you you come off the water and you're like, this is why we do this. For me, I love when I can get up in the morning and I kayak out to the boat and I ride out to the farm with a cup of coffee and spend all day just basically looking at beautiful shells and sorting them. Maybe stop for lunch and. Have a couple oysters. If it's a hot summer day, go for a swim, climb back on the boat and sort some more shells um, and go home. It's just beautiful. I love being on the water. I love the the seascape. Um, I like working close to home and knowing that I'm making a product that people can really enjoy. That's not only helping the environment, but is good for you. Yeah, same. I, I like the I like the calm days, the summer days, uh, not so much the ice end flow of, days, the ice flow end of December days. But uh, yeah, summertime it's it, in most of the year it's just really magical up there on the farm. It's always calm and there's a lot of wildlife and other things going on. And and I love harvesting oysters too. So it's it's just rewarding, especially after three years of looking at these seed and taking care of them and handling them so many times. Finally, we have a market-sized product. It's just really rewarding. Um, can you say a little more about your fishing background that sort of that led you to want to continue to work on the water? Yeah, I grew up fishing out of Bar Harbor uh, with my father since I was about 10 years old. Um, fishing for what? Fishing for lobsters. Uh, so after that, I went after high school, I decided to go to Maine Maritime Academy, get my engineering degree. And I went right back into the fishing industry, working on large uh, catcher processors all over the world, from Norway, West Africa. Uh, I'm, a, I'm working in Alaska right now on a commercial longliner. Um, so we longline for Pacific Cod, and I'm still doing that probably for another year or so. I go up there every six weeks for about six weeks. Um, so half of the year, my wife is taking care of the farm herself, and half of the year, I'm there to help. Um, but I've worked on the water and been on the water my whole life, and I just I was looking for the perfect job where I could be on the water. I didn't have to brave the Bering Sea anymore. You know, I could be up in Thomas Bay where it's nice <laughs> and calm. It's much nicer. I was always also just drawn to working on the water. I don't come from a fishing um, family or background, but in high school, uh, my summer job, um, I just wanted to be out there. And so I called someone up who had a boat and was a storeman for about five or six um, seasons. And then I got kind of 
cold and tired of taking up gear. It's definitely hard work. I'm not a super um, strong big woman. And um, I got into working and sailing on private yachts. So I was a chef on private yachts for another six or seven years, which was um, in Maine in the summers and freelance work in the West Indies um, in the winters, um, which was a lot of fun. It definitely helped my seamanship skills um, and also my culinary skills. Um, But it also meant that I really had to be away from home a lot of the time. So this was kind of a natural segue for us to to move into something that was on the water that incorporated food, seafood, um, but that we could do ourselves. So what's the biggest difference between other fishing experiences you've had and running an oyster farm? For me, it's that this is um, our own company. And so now you don't just show up when someone tells you to. It's you get up when you need to get up and you have to manage every single aspect of, you know, really the the life of that oyster from where you're buying your seed and your, you know, connection to your that person and from three years, you know, three years down the line. So there's no there's no roadmap exactly. You have to create every day and manage every aspect of it, um, which is one of the most satisfying and challenging parts of, of it. So for the listeners who want to be doing what you're doing now, what would be your piece of advice? I mean, the world is your oyster. You can do it. The, I think uh, most people who are in aquaculture support more people doing aquaculture. I think that it really should be the future of our seafood. In a lot of ways, we import so much seafood, and I think we should be growing it here. So um, don't be afraid to get your feet wet. Don't be afraid to reach out to other growers or, or you know, anyone who is a part of the working waterfront. And... Um, we live in an information age, so it's really easy to find out the stuff that you need to learn to be mm-hmm. to be farming, um, to be a sea farmer. Yeah, you mentioned YouTube tutorials and yeah, videos. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we used definitely YouTube a lot. We look things up all of the time. I get asked questions every day about oysters that I don't know the answer to, but I can find them, which is a really fun thing. Um, I wonder, so, so, you know, we should acknowledge that the United States imports more than 90% of the seafood that's consumed in this country is imported and a little more than half of it is farmed. So we're already eating a lot of farmed seafood. I think not everyone realizes that. Um, and so the more, you know, a lot of people, including the National Marine Fisheries Service, think that the more seafood that we can harvest and grow in the United States, um, the better for everybody. So I think we're really lucky in Maine to have access to all this great seafood. It's scallop season. Um, it's urchin season. So um, there's a lot of things available out there. And I think somebody who can really help us um, give a little bit of a broader picture of the industry is Dana Morse. Um, I work with Dana at Maine Sea Grant. He's a Marine Extension associate on the Marine Extension team, which is a partnership between Sea Grant and University of Maine Cooperative Extension. And we're going to talk to Dana a little bit and continue our conversation here on WERU about Maine oysters. Um, Hi, Dana. How are you doing? Hi, good morning. Good morning. good, thanks. (laughs) Nice to hear everybody. Yeah. Um, So Joanna and Jesse Fogg from Bar Harbor Oyster Company have just been talking a little bit about farming um, and their operations and how they got into farming. And Dana, I'm hoping that you can give us a little bit of a a snapshot of of the industry and the oyster situation throughout the state. 
Sure. Uh, well, thanks. I, I've been sitting here uh, listening and smiling <laughs> as your as your guests have told their story. It's just really so nice to hear. Um, the oyster industry in the state of Maine um, has been uh, growing fairly steadily and has been growing a little bit faster uh, in the past uh, few years, say maybe the last five or so. Um, I haven't done a comprehensive count of uh, the number of distinct oyster farms, uh, sort of separate farming operations that we have, but I think that number is probably around 100. Um, and that's really exciting to see for a number of reasons. You, you mentioned the seafood trade deficit, um, and your listeners will probably uh, feel good to know that Maine oysters have a pretty spectacular reputation in the marketplace. Um Many states around the United States are, are growing oysters, and Maine competes well in that environment. Uh, there's a great recognition of the product itself. People have a good um, association with Maine, and so Maine oyster farmers have a lot of good raw materials to work with. Um, so the, the oyster industry is spread from perhaps as far south as about Wells, and our most easterly farm is in the town of Korea. Uh, many of them are centered, um, as Jesse said, in the Damascata. Uh, Casco Bay is, is a growing area, but also the sort of the eastern part of the state has grown a fair bit, too. And I've been pleasantly surprised to notice that people are finding good oyster growing sites in lots of different areas there. So it's, a, it's an encouraging scenario. Um, and what about we have a long history of growing oysters in Maine. Do you want to? Give us a little background on sort of how we got to this um, place of expansion that we're in today. Sure, sure. Um, it's it's an interesting story, and, and in some respects, if you take a look at some of the literature, you can find um, what amounts to early aquaculture activities down through the teens and 20s and certainly in the 30s and the 40s. Um, but it really wasn't until about the end of the 1960s and through the 70s that uh, oyster farming really started to take hold in Maine. Um, it was about the same time that the Darling Marine Center came online, that the National Sea Grant Program came into existence. Um, and in Maine, the first Sea Grant employee or the first Sea Grant hire was a guy named uh, Herbert Haidu. Uh, he was a Ph.D. who came to us from uh, Rutgers University in New Jersey, and uh, he started in 1970, and, and he was a very applied scientist, and, and he told his students, uh, don't just sit in the lab, get out there and do something, and you know, get cold, wet, and dirty, and really learn something. And a number of those students um, were working on early aquaculture activities with oysters, and they found that they liked being outside and being their own boss, and they liked the science of it. And a number of those farms for example, Pemacord Oyster Company, um, are still in existence, and they started off as, uh, as students. Um, and so that kind of got the ball rolling, if you will, in the, in the 70s and has continued to expand. And nowadays, what I think a lot of us are observing is that many people are coming to the industry from some sort of familiarity uh, on the working waterfronts, as you heard uh, Jesse and Joanna talk about. So a lot of our new growers are either fishermen or children of fishermen or have some association with uh, commercial fishing. Um, I wonder, you know, you and I often, do you think we have, we sort of talk about generations of oyster farmers, and so do you think we're on sort of the second or the third 
generation of Maine oyster farms? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Um, uh, I don't know the answer to that. Uh, second or third for sure. Um, what is interesting, and, and uh, Jesse and Joanna may be able to speak to this as well, but there are a number of couples farming uh, in Maine, and their children are out there on the farms with them. Um, and that's really exciting to see because you start to observe uh, tradition and the knowledge that gets passed from one generation to another. And if you if, if you take a look at the easy analog, the lobstering industry, there is just such depth of expertise there. Um, and we're, we start to see that in aquaculture, which is pretty exciting. Um, so I wonder if you can, Dana, tell us a little bit um, of... Jesse and Joanna mentioned some sort of cha- a couple of the sort of challenges, but I'd like to explore challenges a little more because you work with oyster farmers. And so what is the most common question or call, phone call that you're getting? Um, what What is the most common assistance that you find yourself providing to oyster farmers? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a funny question. That, um, and they, they come in all ranges from people who have done a lot of homework and have gotten a good uh, head start to people who are just starting to contemplate this and don't quite know exactly where to begin. Um, but there's a lot of need, uh, I think, as uh, Joanna was talking about, with respect to permitting. Um, Maine has what I would consider a pretty thorough permitting process. And while it's not uh, it's not knee-deep in legalese, per se, you don't need a law degree to do it, uh, it can be pretty daunting, and especially the first time around. So Understanding the the legal aspects of it in the permitting process is definitely a big one. Um, Things like uh, equipment design or what system to use, where to site a farm is a very big one because it's such such an important decision. Um, Those sorts of things come up uh, fairly frequently. Um, Can you say a little more? I want to talk about sort of site selection and why do we grow such good oysters in Maine? What is it? What are the aspects of the environment that that are important to growing a good oyster can i say magic <laughs> <laughs> besides magic yeah well um your your listeners will probably be uh tuned into oysters as it were and so they probably know that oysters taste like the water that they're grown in um and we are just really fortunate and blessed to have just top quality uh coastal waters in Maine. Clean, cold, um, the geology of the region, uh, the phytoplankton that grows in the water, um, all those contribute to what ends up being uh, the oyster's taste. Um, And because we are a little bit cooler here than, say, compared down to Connecticut or Virginia or Florida, our oysters are going to grow a little bit more slowly. um, And that has meaning in terms of... uh, what we might call shuckability, a, a good hard shell in a good shape um, and a good meat shell of the product once you uh, shuck the oyster. Um, and so the, between the temperature, the salinity, um, the growing season itself, and, and all those factors that contribute to the characteristics of the water, I'd, I'd say all those contribute to why we have a pretty fabulous oyster. So I wonder, Jesse and Joanna, can you talk about sort of your site? Like, how did you look around a lot? Did you go all over the island looking? Like, how did you sort of choose your site? And what are the water quality, you know, sort of issues that that you looked for? 
Well, we spent about a summer, <clears throat> you know, brainstorming and thinking of things to do and riding around and looking at different bays. Where can we work from? Where is there working waterfront, which is very limited around Bar Harbor? So we found a beach that's very accessible, Hadley Point, um, right at the head of the island. So then we said, yeah, okay, we can work out of here. This is great. <clears throat> now we need to find a bay that is close by that has hopefully a little bit of fresh water, you know, a good mixing, the right depth, the right bottom sediments. Um, and we found Thomas Bay. Uh, there's Mountain Third Island's largest uh, sort of salt marsh comes right out into our bay. Um, which is very good. The mixing of fresh water and salt water, uh, you know, the warm and the cold, uh, makes a lot of good uh, breeding grounds for phytoplankton and whatnot. So that's kind of how we found it. And of course, we started small, experimented the next year and said, well, these oysters are really growing here. Um, and so we went on to get our larger lease in that area. Yeah, we did have some help. Um Brian Beal came out and, and looked at our site before. So we had some people in the industry who were already kind of um, aware of what that meant. I mean, we thought we knew what a good oyster growing site was like, but we wanted to have some reassurance, which we did. Um, being close to home was also key. We didn't want to have to drive a half an hour um, to go over to where we were going to keep our boat. Um, where we are now, it's nice because we have the ramp um, at the um, in Trenton as well as Hadley Point to use. Um, and there were also some great um, other aquaculture, you know, happenings in the area. So we had some, you know, some other support, some mussel growers. Um, and, yeah, all in all, it's, it's worked out pretty well. And there must be food for the oysters. Dana, I wonder if you – I think there's um, – or there used to be a misconception that aquaculture um, somehow – that it, it – can affect water quality, um, but in fact, oysters filter the water. Is, is that right? Can you talk about how they eat and what they eat? Sure. Um, yeah, oysters, uh, clams, mussels, these are all uh, filter feeders. So they're using their gills uh, not only to respire, to breathe, but they're also collecting food on the surface of the gill. Um, and that process of sorting out these particles turns out to be uh, pretty uh, pretty helpful to water quality. Um and uh, so their principal food is phytoplankton, uh, small marine plants. And that's where uh, a fair bit of uh, oyster nutrition comes from. But they're, they'll also uh, eat things like uh, some small zooplankton uh, and marine detritus, which would be dead organic material. It could be a piece of seaweed that's floating by, for example. Um, and that can form a pretty sizable portion of an oyster's diet as well. And by filtering the water, they're removing things like nitrogen and phosphorus, which in larger amounts can be essentially pollutants. Um, and they're uh, improving water clarity. And that's important for things like seagrasses, where if the water is too turbid, um, sunlight can't reach down to the bottom. So they really do help to essentially take the energy from the sun, which drives phytoplankton growth, uh, and convert that to... Uh, both material that human beings can use, uh, but also kind of provide a good function for the ecology of, uh, of these areas, too. So, Dana, hi. Um, so, oysters filter the water, and um, do they retain any of that um, maybe unhealthy stuff? Or what, what are some of the benefits of eating an oyster, then? 
Oh, well, oysters are pretty pretty healthy food um, uh, in themselves. And as for the the things that are also in the water, um, uh, like uh, Joanna mentioned, uh, having to tell a client that they're not able to harvest because of red tide. Well, there are phytoplankton out there that can produce toxins. And so shellfish like oysters can take those up, but they're also pretty good at purging those things uh, over time as well. And this is a good point to, to make a plug for the main Department of Marine Resources because they do an enormously difficult job of monitoring water quality and the, the health of the shellfish. And they do it really well so that by the time uh, an oyster or a clam or a mussel um, lands uh, on someone's plate or at a restaurant or at a retailer, there are several layers of checks and balances to make sure that the product itself is safe. Okay. Um, thanks, Dana. I want to remind our listeners that you're listening to WERU Coastal Conversations, and we're talking about oysters today with Joanna and Jesse Fogg from Bar Harbor Oyster Company, Alia Utiova from the University of Maine, and Dana Morse from the Sea Grant and Cooperative Extension Marine Extension team. Um, we would like to hear your questions and comments, so feel free to give us a call at one 625 9378 And Dana, I'm going to ask you if you can stay on the line in case we get questions that you might be the best person to answer. And so callers, if you get a busy signal, just hang on and we will get to your question. Um, so let's let's get a little philosophical. Oysters have been a popular subject. Um, Hemingway wrote about oysters. Um, M.K. Fisher wrote about oysters. And so there, there's a romantic side to oysters. And so I'd like to explore, you know, why are we all here? Why are we dedicating an hour? Um, why are people so interested in oysters? Um, and Aaliyah's been doing a little bit of thinking about this. You want to? Yeah, so I, I actually come from Kazakhstan, a landlocked country with... Um, access to the Caspian Sea, which is actually the world's largest lake. Um, they misnamed it with a C. Um, so I've tried oysters for the first time this summer uh, at um, Damerskata River Oyster Festival. And um, it, it's an acquired taste, I have to say. So I've, ever since then, I've been kind of thinking about this phrase that I've, I've heard um, throughout my time at the University of Maine, um, the world is your oyster. And um, uh, it's just, it seems to pop up. And after after working for Darling Center, interning for Darling Center, that phrase just popped up some more. And um, I was curious, Dana, what, what does the phrase, the world is your oyster, mean to you? What do you think of it? <laughs> yeah, um, well, I had to do a little bit of uh, consultation with Dr. Google on this. <laughs> <laughs> It turns out that it was a, I knew it was a reference from Shakespeare, but it turns out it's the Merry Wives of Windsor and Paul Staff and someone named Pistol, I think, talking to one another. Um, and I take it to mean that the, the world is your oyster kind of means that opportunities await for those people who take advantage of them and, and make opportunities for that to happen. Um, kind of take the bull by the horns, if you will, to use another analogy. And so uh, you heard both Jesse and Joanna talk about the work involved. Uh, and uh, I will also tell you that it is a lot of work. And so they've done an enormous amount of preparation and uh, yeah, work 
to get as far as they've gone. And so that doesn't come without them essentially taking the bull by the horn. So they have made, they have created something. So that's what it means to me. Joanna, what about you? Well, just I mean, in the same kind of sense to add to that. Yeah, I, you know, if, the, if you think about actually, if you were to find a wild oyster, you know, on the coast of Maine somewhere, which you don't very often, but if you were to pick it up off of the beach, it might look really muddy and gross. And then it would also probably be difficult to open. You would have to find a tool and get creative. And and that just speaks to the, the, the luck of finding something and then the work that goes into actually opening it. And then inside you either have a beautifully delectable and healthy meat and possibly a pearl. Mm-hmm. So it's it's that, that luck plus hard work plus... Um, delicious um nutritious um gem which um i think think that's what the world is your oyster is about um we're going to come back to the gem aspect but we have a call from yo in tremont good morning good morning i'd be interested to hear in a little more detail just what is the process by which the filtrate deposited on the animal's gills is purged from both the water and from the meat and what that means for product quality and the environment. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Sure, thanks for calling. Uh, Dana, can you talk a little bit more about the sort of particle filtering and sorting process? Uh, Sure, and I'll try to be brief, but it's a fairly fantastic, amazing process. Um, A lot of what constitutes oyster food is down in the range of anything, say, from 5 microns, maybe up to 30 microns or so. Um, And the diameter of a human hair is around 60 microns. So we're talking about pretty small food here. Um, The oyster gill uh, has uh, parts of it that wave back and forth that generate water currents. And so as these particles uh, encounter the gill, they get stuck on the gill um, with mucus. And then the oyster does a a kind of amazing thing. It can determine what constitutes good food versus what constitutes bad food um, on the surface of the gill. And so the the good food gets transported down towards the mouth and in through the gut, and the oyster essentially eats it. Um, The stuff that is not food gets bound up in mucus and gets ejected on the other side of the oyster in in what's called pseudo-feces, so it doesn't really go through the oyster. Um, And so the oyster has has mechanisms to figure out what's good stuff and what's not good stuff, um, and all done without a brain, which I find fairly amazing. That's the magic part, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Great. Um, Thanks for that that question. Glad we can keep you on the line a little bit longer, Dana. Um, Jesse, do you have thoughts on on why why the world would be one's oyster? Well, I couldn't agree more with Joanna. We sort of talked about that last night, and <clears throat> I just you know that an oyster is hard to get into. It takes work to open one, um, but inside you have a reward. So you know life's hard. You have to work at it, but if you work hard enough, you will be rewarded. Pretty sort of good. what it means to Pretty me. Good. What do you think? Oh, so insightful. Very, very insightful, yeah. Um, so 
Let's talk a little bit about what happens when you open an oyster um, and you get inside of it. I, I wonder if, if Joanna or Jesse, you can just sort of talk a, a little bit about the consumer end of oysters. And that's certainly how I came to oysters, just as a consumer and someone who loved eating them and, and what I think is the romance associated with, with eating an oyster and sort of the excitement. Um, and I think we tend to focus a lot on the half-shell market because that's what because Maine's oysters are such high quality, they tend to go to raw bars and other places that are shucking and serving them on the half shell. Of course, there's a whole other industry of roasted oysters, cooked oysters, oyster stew, oyster stuffing. Um, and so we do tend to dwell a lot on the half shell market. But can you talk a little bit about who are your consumers? What is the market like? Are they indeed all going to the half shell market? Um, they, a lot of them, um, we sell directly to restaurants. And so those that, you know, that is your half shell market, but we also sell a lot to friends, neighbors, um, Facebook connections, um, just right out of our, our workshop. And those are the people who are, aren't afraid to shuck them, um, or aren't afraid to learn. I think there needs to be a lot of demystifying of the process of shucking oysters. Um, I think ours are actually really simple to shuck if you have the right tool and, um, just a little bit of a, a rundown on, on how to do it. Um, I didn't grow up eating oysters, um, but once I started, I knew I wasn't going to stop. Um, yeah, a lot of ours go to, you know, they go all over the place. And again, this is our first year of having market-sized oysters. So um, our our oysters will get further and further. Um, and hopefully we will still be able to keep them to our neighbors who just want to shuck some, you know, on their porch one evening, as well as some really fine, you know, white table or white tablecloth um, restaurants um, in other far corners of the world. And so what are people, what do you find that people are looking for or asking for? We, we have found that we're trying to grow what we call a 3-2-1 oyster, three inches long, two inches wide, one inch deep. It's a nice cocktail-sized oyster. It's not too big and scary for the newcomers, um, but with great meat quality. So meat right out to the edge of the shell. Uh, very clean shells because we don't want any mud in there, especially for newcomers. Um, so that's really what we're trying to grow. Um, and it, we've been successful at growing some really beautiful oysters with great meat quality. Um, and we have we have been roasting some and barbecue and grilling some to sort of get uh, new people into eating oysters. And we find that if you can grill one or two for, for a newcomer and get the taste for it, then they'd be quite likely to try a raw one soon after. Dana, I wonder, do you have a sense for the percentage of Maine oysters that go to the half-shell market versus other endpoints? Um, yeah, I would, I would. without knowing a precise number, I would guess that the vast majority is going to the half-shell market. Uh, I have seen some Maine oysters on the menu for uh, grilled. Those are usually the larger ones. Uh, also delicious, um, but... Well over 90%, I would bet, would be for the half-shell market. So I'm curious. You know, I remember when I started eating oysters in Maine, they were pretty hard to find. Um, and and finding a restaurant that would serve them was a big deal. And and uh, my partner and I would travel all over the state to try to find um, some oysters and to find a place that served Maine oysters. And a lot has changed in the last 10 or 15 years. And it's really exciting um, to be able to find Maine oysters so so many places. Um, and so, can, where, so where can you find Bar Harbor oysters? 
Um, we color oysters by Harbor Blondes, and we are currently um, selling to Peaky Toe Provisions in Bar Harbor. Um, we also are at Rogue Cafe in Southwest Harbor, McKay's Public House in Bar Harbor, Novio's Bistro in Bangor. Um, we've got some at Eventide in Portland, um, Row 34 in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, I think that's it for right now. And usually at the Barnacle, but they've stopped for the winter. It's so what kind of reaction are you getting? Like when you – did you have to approach restaurants or did they come find you or – because there hasn't it, been really – Probably 50-50, okay. yeah. I mean we – a lot of people found us actually but uh, – He says that because he's not on the marketing app. <laughs> I made a lot of phone calls, um, sent out a lot of emails. Um, social media has been something that has been a big part of um, our marketing strategy. It's just, um, it's just the way things are done now. So – once we started having some ground laid, we we did have a couple people contact us. For, for the most part, we've reached out to places where we have wanted our oysters to be. Um, showed up with a dozen, shucked them, had you know had had a tasting, and and hope that they call back. And most people who have our oysters do. So we feel good about that. We found once we get in the door somewhere and the chef tries them, then then they're hooked. Then that's all they want. <clears throat> Uh, once again, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio. Uh, in the studio with us today, we have Jesse and Joanna Fogg from Bar Harbor Oyster Company, Alia Utiova from the University of Maine, Dana Morse from the Marine Extension Team at the University of Maine, and I'm your host, Catherine Schmidt from Maine Sea Grant. Um, we're talking about oysters today. We'd love to take your questions and comments at 1-866-625-9378. Um, and we are going to, we might get a little noisy here in a couple seconds because I think Jesse and Joanna have brought some oysters with them and we're going to um, see just how easy they are um, to shuck uh, and take a look at what they look like. Um, Jesse's going to get some oysters out. All right, this is the best part. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Dana, I don't know if we can phone you one of these, but we'll, 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 we'll get you some sometime. And shameless plug, um, I've had your oysters. They are delightful. So, yeah, I'm kind of jealous right now. And we're, we're also on Facebook Live. So, um, so Jesse's taken out for the listeners. We've got a half dozen oysters. They are indeed 321, so they're about three inches long, two inches wide, and he's um, gently shucking them. We are being very careful of the audio equipment <laughs> while we do this. Don't spill any liqueur. Like Jesse's... Yeah. Oh. <laughs> there we are. So really, sh- shucking them isn't, I mean, again, I said I, I didn't grow up eating oysters, and I think people are afraid to buy them um, at markets um, unshucked because they are afraid they will cut themselves or not open them, um, which are valid concerns. But with the right tool, and there are lots of different knives, and a lot of it's kind of a personal preference, um, you can open an oyster. If you can crack a lobster, by all means, you can open an oyster. And um, we find that it's often easiest to open really cold oysters. So if you buy some at your local fishmonger and want to open them for the holidays, put them on ice 15, 20 minutes before you shuck them. A really cold one is going to open up more easily for you. Um and I prefer a four-inch Boston blade. Jesse's using one here that's slightly more curved, which um, might prevent piercing that meat. What um, makes it a Boston blade? Um, that's just the style. It's a certain shape of the blade. Um, you know, different knives come in different um, 
there are some that were Demerscotta knives. It's just a, a different size. Um, do you have one of mine, hon? Yes, Amy, so. you want one? <laughs> um, Not for breakfast. So really, Thank just you. you're just prying open a hinge, which is just kind of a slow, easy um, push and a little bit of a twist. That's the knife that I like to use if we're live videoing. <laughs> um, I think this is the best beginner blade. Um, so we also have some mignonette. So traditionally... Um, raw oysters, and this comes from France, I believe, yep, um, would be served with a, a vinaigrette with chopped shallot in it. And so Jesse's brought some of that as well. We're going to eat them. We're going to eat yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> Put a little mignonette on one. Slurp it down. <laughs> That's a beautiful sound. So, Aaliyah, you want to share a little bit while we're doing this um, of what your, what it was like when you first ate one? It was very salty. Um, very salty, uh, interesting texture. Would um, you like one? Or? Yeah, I would actually like one. Okay. I haven't had one since um, the summer, and I forgot how to eat one, actually. So slide, slide it down the other way. Turn it around. You want to slide it down okay. the other way. I usually chew mine twice. I think we've got a, a two-chew oyster. Give it a bite, yeah. give, give it a little bite. They should have a nice texture. The, okay. the meats are pretty thick on them, and then down the hatch. And almost every time I do it, I tell, well, I always tell beginners to imagine diving into the ocean. If you like to swim, just imagine that you're jumping into the ocean. That's what, you know, that salt water is just like what it feels like to, to jump in. Truly. Yeah, I love it. This is very good. Oh, you love it now. Awesome. <laughs> I do right. like it. Yeah. Well, it, I, it, it does take, you know, it's an acquired thing, especially getting used to the texture and texture, the taste. Texture, yeah. Um, but Maine oysters are very sort of um, clean. They're definitely salty and cold. Um, these shells are very clean. Sometimes you get shells that might have some growth on them. So do you guys have to flip the cages a lot? Exactly. Do you scrub them? How um, do you get them so clean? We have a pretty um, clean oyster, both the flavor and the physical shell and the aesthetic, um, because they're surface grown. And we do. We flip our cages. Um, in the summer, about every 10 days, this time of year, it's not quite as necessary to prevent biofouling. So all of the barnacles, mussels, algae, you know, things that could grow on the shell, um, that can't withstand being exposed to the sunlight for very long, but our, our oysters can. So the turning of the cages makes the shell a bit stronger and also keeps the, keeps the, the shells nice and clean. This time of year, we, we don't have to scrub our oysters because... That's this is just how we pull them out of the water. We give them a few dips to rinse off anything that might be on them, um, but they've been handled so many times over the course of their life that they are. That's just how they come now. <laughs> so their life. Um, how old are they now? This is a three-year oyster, and you can tell if you look at the back of an oyster. For the most part, um, it has growth rings like a tree. So this is how big the seed was when I, you know, I bought it, which is about the size of a, a pinky, a woman's pinky nail, roughly. And you know, about a little ways up, you can see where there's an indent, just like mm-hmm. a, a, a ring on a on a tree, um, and that's its second year. And then all the way up is its its third year. So the fun thing about, I think. The half-shell market and sort of why eating raw oysters is because you do get to taste different oysters from different parts and see if you can tell if there's a difference or not. Um, I think sometimes that can go a little bit too far in terms of, the, you know, miroir and and really it's difficult to describe the taste of an oyster, um, much like it's difficult to describe the taste of wine. And while there is a vocabulary, um, I tend to sort of try to avoid that vocabulary. Um, but Dana, do you want to say anything about the oyster trail and sort of what are the differences up and down the coast in taste of Maine oysters? Oh yeah, sure. Um, uh, and thanks. Um, so 
for our listeners. Um, uh, let's see. I think it was back in 2011. Um, uh, Catherine, I get to say some nice things about you. You <laughs> kind of came up with the uh, the idea of an oyster trail uh, in the same way that uh, we have trails for other things like beer and wine and uh, the main island trail for people who are looking to kayak along the main coast. Um, the oyster trail uh, has been around for a few years now, and it's really about experiences for people who want to come to Maine and have some kind of oyster-related experience. And so this could be a farm tour. Uh, it could be a restaurant experience. It could be a place to go and buy oysters. It might be a site that has some kind of oyster-related history to it, uh, such as the um, the shell middens uh, in Damascata. And um, the Maine Oyster Trail is uh, really took a couple of nice leaps forward this year with a paper map um, that's uh, available and the online map as well. And I think if I remember the URL correctly, it's oystertrailmaine.org. That's right? correct, yep. And um, so you can go to oystertrailmaine.org uh, and use the Google map there to navigate around to a bunch of different places to buy oysters or some farm tours and that sort of thing. And you can learn about oysters. Um, and our partners in the, in the effort are the Maine Aquaculture Association, the Maine Aquaculture Innovation Center. We've worked very closely with the Maine Office of Tourism and uh, a, a woman named Julie Chu who operates a blog called In a Half Shell, and she is a, just a hugely knowledgeable oyster enthusiast. Uh, and so we're looking forward to more development of the Oyster Trail so that if you want to come to Maine and if you want to go on Oyster Safari um, <laughs> and try all kinds of different oysters, that's your, that's your uh, portal into it right there. <laughs> yes, we, we also want to just help people find. It's kind of a matchmaker so that people who want to eat Maine oysters, you don't have to be, you can already live here and still want to find out. Um, what restaurants serve Maine oysters, and you can find out where all the different... So I find it kind of confusing because there are farmers, and then you have a company or your farm, but then your oyster brand name might be different from your farm name. So if you're in a, you know, from the consumer side, if you're in a restaurant, um, if they serve more than one kind, they'll list the different names. So um, here we, we're eating Bar Harbor Blondes. Um, and so linking up where where does that what body of water are those oysters actually from the oyster trail map can help you kind of figure out and I think in my mind I was just thinking of those people that that want to try different kinds and figure out oh I let you know really like the ones from this part of the coast or I like the ones from this particular river um, but you Jesse you talked a little bit about You've been grilling or roasting. You know, we are in the holiday season, and so I want to um, stay on the food angle for a little bit. And please um, give us a call if you have any oyster questions, one 625 9378 This is Coastal Conversations on WERU. We're talking oysters. We've, we've spent a lot of time on raw oysters and eating them on the half shell, but um, what are some other ways that we can serve and eat oysters? Yeah, we've recently discovered grilling them, which we really like. Uh, <clears throat> just open them on the half shell, put them on the grill with some herb butter. We've experimented with a few other things, but it's something pretty mild so you can still taste the uh, oyster. Uh, they're definitely le less salty, but you can still get that nice sweet hit out of that main oyster that you do. Um, 
So we, we really like grilled oysters. Um, I used to kind of be opposed to them. I used to be kind of, oh, it's a, a waste. It's, yeah, it's a waste <laughs> of a main oyster, and you don't really get to taste everything. But they're still pretty good. Um, and it gets, like I said, it gets newcomers uh, into oysters. and It's a leader. It's yeah. a leader, yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, we have a call from Rich. Oh, no, we do not have a call from Rich. Um, sorry, Rich. Um, please do give us a call if you have any questions. We've got a few more minutes left, one 925 We've got Dana... Morse on the line who um, can answer technical questions about growing oysters. Um, Dana, do you serve them? Uh, do you cook oysters? I do. Um, I love grilled oysters. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like Jesse, I was a late convert to them um, and was introduced both at the Pemaquid Oyster Festival but also uh, down in New Orleans where the char-grilled oyster is a, is a thing. And... Um, what a wonderful confluence of oysters and butter and cheese and bacon and who knows what all. So, yeah, grilled oysters are, are worth the time. And so given that it's winter and not all of us have dug our grills out of the snow, uh, you can broil them, right? That's a perfectly good, acceptable substitute. Broil them, Absolutely. put them in a stew. And if you do feel like doing the half shell, a, f- a clean patch of snow is the best way to serve them. So it's hard to find crushed ice in the state of Maine. Most of us don't have, you know, crushed ice machines or we've got hammers and bags, I suppose. But we've been eating ours just with some mignonette on, on a fresh bed of, of Maine snow. And, and that's a pretty nice thing to have by the fireplace. Sounds like a nice um, New Year's Eve it does. service if you're having guests. Um, so a little more about what to put on a raw oyster. So we talked about the mignonette, which is sort of the classic French. Um, and often you'll get lemon with an oyster. Um, personally, I mostly eat them naked and don't even want to put anything on them because Maine oysters are so good. I, and I really want to taste the flavor and I don't want anything to hide that. Um, what do, we, how, do we have feelings about cocktail sauce? I don't keep it in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's all right if you do. It's all right if you don't. Uh, Malia, so you don't have oysters in the Caspian Sea. Are there other shellfish? I don't believe so. What's the biggest seafood that you're... Fish. Fish. Um, what kind? We have swordfish. We have... Um, I believe we have carp. Well, I'm trying to translate the fish names right now. <laughs> I didn't get to that point. But I you can say them in Russian. Yeah. Chornaya ryba, krasnaya ryba. Ryba means fish. And I did grow up eating caviar. So I, um, and at the time it was, there were no strict regulations and it was very, very affordable. $40 for a jar of black caviar. And um, it was just a delicacy for us. Um, so I guess for me, caviar is like for Mainers to oysters, <laughs> except now caviar is ridiculously expensive. <laughs> yeah. So oysters, um, I think what's nice about all the farms and having the access and and having access to fresh oysters in your community is that they aren't that rare. Mm-hmm. They have this... This culture of being, you know, fine, fancy dining raw oysters, and now um, they are a little bit more accessible um, for anyone to access. Um, Jesse and Joanna, do you have other thoughts about the community in Bar Harbor and how people have been receiving your oysters? Or, you know, what what are people curious about? What kind of questions do they get all the time? 
it's actually kind of it's it can be kind of fun because most people who are interested in eating an oyster want to know everything about it and so they want to know how big was it when you got it and oh you buy seeds or they like plants um we get all kinds of questions um and it can be a lot of fun to talk about and people's curiosities fuel our own curiosities which make it kind of exciting um yeah people are just yeah wondering how we grow them and we do um I don't know if, Jess, you want to talk a little bit about how we grow them. We grow all of our oysters in cages, like we mentioned earlier, but there are a variety of methods of oyster growing, and that can change from, you know, a lot of different farmers have different methods from the one-year oyster to the three-year oyster. So that also not only affects the the shape of the oyster, but also the flavor. Um, so we often talk about that with our with our potential customers or people who are just interested in it. So um, is there – where can people find out more information about Bar Harbor Blondes? We have a website, barharboroyster.com, which has some information, a lot of photos of what we do and where we're doing it. Um, we also have a Facebook page, um, and either of those will lead you to, you know, contacting us directly if you had any more, you know, questions about how to buy our product or what we do. We, we love talking about it. Um, and, yeah, we, we think that oysters are great for Maine and great for people, so we're really happy to share information with, with you if you want to eat our oysters or if you're thinking about starting your own oyster farm or even if you just want to – it's not that hard to get um, a limited-purpose site and, and have a cage of your own and just do it recreationally to have some for your family or your friends. It's really um, – if you're not afraid to get your feet wet, it's really – it can be a fun um, activity that can also be um, lucrative and nutritious. Um, and if people want to learn more about the Oyster Trail and other kinds of oysters grown in Maine, that URL is oystertrailmaine.org. And we will be putting this information and links on the Coastal Conversations page on the Maine Sea Grant website. Um, we've come to the end of our program today. Um, thanks so much for joining us in the studio, Joanna and Jesse, Bar Harbor Oyster Company. Um, thanks to Leah Utiova for joining us today. Dana, thanks for joining us on the phone. Um, have a great rest of your holiday. Um, thanks to Natalie Springle, who's your regular host for this show, and, of course, um, all the listeners. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine. Um, join us at uh, 10 a.m. every on the fourth Friday of each month. Um, the theme music of Following Sea was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Thanks to Amy Brown for engineering our program. Thanks to WERU for letting us bring oysters into the studio today. Um, this is Catherine Schmidt wishing you a good morning, a happy solstice, and a wonderful holiday season. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located.